0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever and with fishing booker you can experience it too no matter where you are discover your next adventure on fishing booker
1: the john freaking Meerpod is stoked to partner with garage grown gear for season six of the podcast garage grown gear or ggg for short is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, garage-grown gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping and returns over $40. Do yourself a favor and get your gear at GGG. Fortune favors the bold, Virgil.
2: What equates to roughly twenty thousand feet on uh, it was a pretty steep line, and during that time, I was the only person on this entire mountain in this pretty remote valley surrounded by these renowned Himalayan giants like Ama and Mount Everest. And it kind of, like that trip, it was my fourth or fifth time into that particular region, and it kind of renewed the spirit of Nepal for me after I'd kind of gotten burnt out on, on spending time in that particular zone. And it kind of became a little bit of a a launchpad and a catalyst to continue exploring that region and eventually share it
1: with other people. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio.
0: Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week... Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck.
1: Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirtbags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio, and welcome to season six. We've put a fresh spin on some things, including the title, and we're trying out some new segments, but some things will always be here, like, hey, if you like what we're doing here, help us out, take just a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and if you don't like it, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right. This week, we are bringing back an adventurer and storyteller who originally came on the podcast and spun some yarns way back in season one. Welcome back to Hiker Trash Radio, Chris Brindley Jr. How's it going, Chris? It's going pretty great. Thanks for having me on. Can't believe yeah, it. has it's been It's you, been a moment, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. What a journey. <laughs> yes, yes. And so... You know, just a, a couple of reminders about the podcast and and maybe some of this stuff has changed. I don't remember exactly what I had in place when I had you on. So some of this may be brand new. Some of it may sound familiar. Um, when you were uh, on the podcast earlier, did we talk about trail names? I don't know that we did. okay. So you know that you know in American backpackers have this unique tradition of assigning trail names. Uh, to people out there on the trail. It doesn't happen in Europe, doesn't happen in in New Zealand, doesn't happen anywhere else. It just seems to happen in the US. Um, I know that you are a multi-sport endurance athlete. Have you picked up a nickname or a trail name along the way?
2: Uh, So I broke my arm over the summer in 2022 and it zeroed out all of my alpine climbing plans throughout the summer. And I was working on recovery, just kind of keeping my fitness up through running. And once I got to the point to where I was kind of on the home stretch with the bone healing and getting closer to be able to take off my splint, I decided that, you know, I wasn't going to let the summer be a wash and I was going to go do one of the few things that I still could outdoors and that was walk. And I was in Boulder at the time spending some moments of the summer with my family. And I decided that kind of on a whim, I would go walk the Colorado trail from East to West. And so I got everything together, kind of made a quick plan packed up and within a couple of weeks of deciding that I was going to go do it, I headed out on the trail I was wearing a purple hiking skirt and a purple sunshirt, colors of royalty, and a couple people took to calling me king, but it wasn't something that I accepted wholeheartedly, felt a
1: little pretentious for my taste. But okay. they tried so all that that as a as a great story, all that story to say, no, you don't have a trail name at this point. Exactly. Okay. All right. I am intrigued though about the purple hiking skirt. You know, I I have run into some folks out there who have been in kilts or hiking skirts and it looks really relaxed, freeing, (laughs) little airflow in areas that normally don't get airflow. I mean, how is it? Absolutely, it was quite liberating, so. Liberating,
2: uh, that is the word I was looking for, yes. I'd never worn a skirt before. That was the longest through hike in the backcountry that I had ever done before. And I figured I'm not gonna have a whole lot of interactions with people along the way. So why not, you know, give this a shot and wear whatever seems comfortable for me. And so it was definitely an experiment in a lot of ways. And what I found that it was a really positive experience overall. Um, it streamlined my layering process. While I was hiking on hot days, going commando underneath, you're able to get a lot more airflow through there. And that led to less sweating, which resulted in less chafing. It was really fantastic in that regard. And then on the rainy stormy days, which I had quite a few of, I paired it with a rain skirt and still nothing on underneath. And that combination allowed for a lot of ventilation to continue. And typically on a day when you're wearing rain gear, you either get wet from the outside or you get wet from the inside. But on those days, other than some splash down around my ankles, I didn't get wet at all. It was
1: pretty awesome. Chris, you know, this is the start of season six, as I mentioned. So I've talked to probably close to 250 people. And, and I'm, I am always learning with every, every person I talked to, I learned something. I did not know that there was such a thing as rain skirts. So you have your yeah. purple hiking skirt and you've got a rain skirt that goes over the top of that. exactly there's, there's rain pants. Now, now I, I know that there's, there's rain skirts. That's amazing. Yeah. It was such a sweet combo. Like I was definitely sold and 10 out of 10 would use again. 10 out of 10 would use again. Love it. All right. Hey, the, the last time you were on, did we have the pro tip inside of the week? Uh, I don't know that we did. Okay. So that was something I added in uh, towards the end of season one, the pro tip inside of the week where every, every, uh, every episode, the guest was supposed to provide some trail wisdom for our listeners to make their next outdoor experience better. We have rebranded the pro tip inside of the week, go something with something a little more hiking related kind of a, a, a new, a new hiking feel to it. And this is called the hiking hack and same, mm-hmm. same basic concept. You know, you're going to share some trail wisdom with our listeners, uh, but it's not the pro tip anymore. It's called the hiking hack. And right. you know, I know you've been, you spent some time on the Colorado trail. You can pull from that experience or you can pull from any multitude of your other outdoor adventures, because I'm sure there's something there that applies. Yeah. Um, so I'm it comes at the end of the episode. Oh, Not okay. The, OK, end so of the episode. I'll so it a Little it, dwell. Let, let it let it uh, percolate and we'll get to the hiking hack later in the episode. Okay. Right. Trailblazers Toolkit. That's right. It's time for the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. I love to talk about gear on the podcast and I love to hear about the most important item in my guest adventure gear. If you were preparing for your next adventure and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? Give me all the specifics on type of gear and tell me why you've got to have it out there. This could be any type of item gear, apparel or luxury item. So Chris, what is your item in your toolkit?
2: I, never go on any trip whether it's an alpine climb a ski mountaineering objective a backpacking trip without my sea to summit long spork the length of it allows me to dip into whatever vessel that i'm using to consume my hot meals the spork functionality allows it to better grip pasta and more granular bits than a typical spoon and though it's not titanium which is all the rage it is lighter still as aluminum than most other long utensils
1: yeah you want to keep your food off your knuckles right yeah and I don't like doing dishes so nice very wise very wise now when you were out on the on the Colorado Trail what what types of gear besides the Spork, did you take with you? How how much did your your pack weigh?
2: I think my pack weighed somewhere around 14 pounds um, before consumables. So I kept it pretty minimalist as far as different kit while still bringing a couple luxury items. I, Spending a lot of solo time. So I had a Kindle and had a small battery pack to be able to charge that. I had to account for a late season start, which could have resulted in some kind of more treacherous weather condition encounters like snowstorms and stuff in the San Juans and into September. And so had a few extra. Insulated layering options like a pair of gloves, which I wouldn't normally take on a summer trip. A few things like that kind of added up and sort of pushed me above 10 pounds. But overall, I had a pretty minimalist kit with a, a square flat tarp um, made from Dyneema.
1: Um, relatively lightweight, durable pack. You got it pretty dialed in for not being a regular backpacker or through hiker. I mean that 14 pound base weight, that's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, so as an alpinist, I've gotta be extremely weight conscious about my camping kit because I'm oftentimes lugging in a lot of technical equipment. And so if I go do a series of summer Alpine rock link ups in the Eastern Sierra, I might have three days worth of kit, including rack and rope and all my camp gear and food packed into a 25 liter day pack, just because I kind of know what I can get away with, what I need, what I don't need. And so when I strip away all of those technical bits and equipment, it's pretty easy to pare down stuff for just walking.
1: Yeah. How much, how much does the climbing equipment weigh? How much is it, how much is on your, on your typical, uh, alpinism trip? What, how much rope are you carrying? What, what about, you know, the other bits of equipment, how much does that all add up to? I don't
2: even like to weigh that stuff because it would probably annoy me if I did. Um, And the thing about it is, you know, that equipment you can, if you're doing an Alpine climb, that's well within your comfort grade, you can pare down on what you can bring, how kind of deep you go with a rack. I've been using a 40 meter rope for my alpine climbing that is roughly nine millimeters in diameter, which is a third shorter than the 60 meter that people typically use just because it creates faster rope management on variable changing terrain. When you're kind of moving from like fifth class scrambling up into more technical pitched out climbing, it just makes those transitions a lot more efficient. And then it, saves a significant amount of weight, probably two, three pounds just by ditching those extra 20 meters. So those are ways that I've kind of dialed in my Alpine rock kit a little bit. Um, having a lightweight repel line to pair that with it. If I need, uh, to be able to do some longer repels that I wouldn't be able to cover with a 60 meter rope, but it still ends up being lighter, but allows for lengthier repels kind of, uh, knowing where I am with my climbing abilities and comfort level allows me to strip down the number of pieces I have to take in a rack. And so that helps me kind of save some weight where I want to. And then, you know, oftentimes if you're on a high alpine rock route for multiple days on end, then you don't really got to worry about camping and bugs and things like that. So just a lightweight bivvy kit
1: usually will suffice for the summertime. There you go. But whatever you do, don't weigh the rope, don't weigh the racks, because ignorance is bliss. I firmly believe exactly. that. You know, <laughs> if you if you know it, you're going to be annoyed. If you don't know it, you, you're just wondering. You know what it could be. Definitely. Yeah, I love talking about gear, and to help us talk about gear, we've got.
0: It's the hiking pole.
1: The hiking pole, and I like to point out that pole is spelled P-O-L-L, not P-O-L-E. Uh, this is poll like a survey. I think I'm really clever that I've, I've come up with this. And your look, your your look, the look on your face right now is typical of the rest of my guests. You're know, like, okay, yeah, big deal, whatever. But uh, this is a seven-question survey, Chris, that's going to help me give you a score on the sanity scale from one to 100, with one being completely insane and 100 being completely sane. This sounds fun. Most of my friends rank me pretty down low on that scale. (laughs) That's usually a a pre-question that I ask is, you know, if I were to ask your friends and family, where, where were they score you? How, where do you think they put you? Probably like a seven. (laughs) A seven. Okay. Wow. Well, this is uh, all related to hiking gear. And since you, you had that Colorado trail uh, experience and you know, you do a lot of hiking with uh, your, your exploits up in the mountains as well when you do, when you do your climbing. So I think, It'll be very interesting for our listeners to hear your take on these seven questions. You ready? Let's go. All right. First question. Easy one. Trekking poles or no trekking poles? Uh, How about Uno? One trekking pole. All right. See, (laughs) it's usually a binary binary answer. You know, it's either yes or no. And when there's a a third option thrown in, that's a major point deduction. So I like this. This is good. it's kind of the Alpinist way to have
2: one trekking pole that you can use for stability and pair that with a PLA and ice axe when you're moving
1: up the slope. So it gives you a little bit of latitude. All right. And um, well, we'll get to it. I have have a follow-up question on the pole, but I will use it in a a later question. Question number two, what's on your feet boots or trail runners? Uh, Trail runners. (laughs) Every time trail runners.
2: I'll use those. Up to climbing roughly five three, five, four. And then if it gets a little stouter than that, I'll switch into approach shoes. Then I don't like to bring my rock shoes out unless it's like five eight, five nine. And uh I'm never gonna be caught in a pair of hiking
1: boots if I'm in the backcountry. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, These are some corollary questions that don't count towards your your point total, but I I think our, our listeners would be interested to hear what are approach shoes and what are rock shoes and how are they different than trail runners? Yeah. So I guess you could say that an
2: approach shoe is kind of like a hybrid between a trail runner and a traditional rock climbing shoe so where some of the major differences will be are related to the footbed and the outsole the outsole on an approach shoe is going to have some characteristics of a troll runner shoe but the tread is likely going to be shallower and geared towards moving around on more durable rocky surfaces and then Oftentimes an approach is going to have what's called kind of like a climbing zone in the toe area, which allows you to smear. And then they'll have a rubber rand around the toe, which allows you to get good grip and crack climbing. And um, oftentimes the soles will be a bit stiffer, which allows you to also edge on rock. So kind of using the edge of your sole to, to get onto some smaller rock features but they have the comfort and the fit of a trail runner shoe. And so I'll use an approach shoe for soloing Alpine rock, probably up to like five, six, five, seven. And then if it gets any stouter than that, then I'll put on a rock shoe. They're just way more comfortable to be in than a traditional rock shoe, especially if you're doing stuff in the Alpine, but they kind of move around, at least the uh, more minimalist-oriented approach shoes. There's a spectrum, just like with everything. But the minimalist-oriented approach shoes kind
1: of have some characteristics similar to a trail runner as well. And I have another follow-up question because you're throwing out numbers like you know five, six, five, seven, or class five scramble. Tell us the difference between a, a scramble and the the more technical uh, levels of difficulty. What what do the what does the five, six, five, seven, all the way up to, I believe like five 14, and then you get into some little letters after the numbers that, that, that determine or tell you, you know, what the difficulty of that uh, climb is.
2: Yeah. So the grading scale that we use in the U.S. is called the Yosemite Decimal System. And from a hiking perspective, there might be some familiarity with that because like class one, class two, that's all kind of part of that same system. Once you get into like fifth class, you start to get some differentiation with a decimal point division and so like usually like a technical route will start being graded at five two and five two through five nine is just going to be the the number system and then anything 510 and above will be further subdivided into ABC or D to designate the difficulty with the letters increasing, designated a difficulty increase. With fifth class stuff, it's somewhat synonymous with like kind of low fifth, I guess you could say, is probably like anywhere from like 5.0 to. 5.4 something like that and it's gonna be blocky movements particularly in the alpine which is where i tend to kind of gravitate towards uh you're you're rock climbing and there's consequence if you fall you could very well die but it's pretty easy climbing so you're using both your hands you're moving up you don't want to fall but it's pretty easy going it's not too difficult once you start getting into like five 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 six you start incorporating more climbing techniques so you might have to use a crack system in the rock or like depending on the route there could be different features that you utilize a variety of different techniques then i find that once you start getting into like kind of the higher grades which my bread and butter is just kind of like multi-pitch alpine moderate route so stuff that is up to five nine but it's off in the mountains it's kind of a journey to get out to it and it's more about the adventure than the difficulty of climbing um that's the stuff that i really enjoy the most and so it's where i spend most focus of my time um, once you start getting into like five seven five eight five nine that kind of stuff can be a little bit steeper a little bit more vertical and is going to require more climbing technique uh versus the stuff that's like low fifth class you know oftentimes it feels blocky and you're kind of just like questing up um, almost sort of like vertical hiking in a way
1: got it now do you know what is the most difficult uh, level that has been successfully climbed Uh, like 515 c or something like that I don't
2: really keep up with that stuff it's a whole other realm
1: yeah and it's, what 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 is your most successful difficult climb what what was this, the technical rating on that um the climbs that i gravitate
2: most towards are actually rated on kind of like a completely different scale so i i really gravitate towards like alpine mixed climbing where i'm using a couple of ice tools i've got crampons on my boots and I'll be using snow slopes for approach, but then I might get onto uh, some mixed terrain where I'm rock climbing with my tools and then following that path of weakness over to an ice runnel. And then that runnel might have like some vertical elements where I've got one tool in the ice and one tool over on the rock and then transitioning over to more rocks. So it's kind of like a, a multi-discipline puzzle And with that kind of stuff, I've climbed in like the Water Ice 5, Mix 5, realm, the Alpine, which once again, isn't difficult mix climbing by any means, but you're out in the Alpine. There's some consequence and there's a lot of skill sets that go into it that you've got to be able to pull from and utilize on the fly to progress through these types
1: of routes. Got it. Got it. Thank you for that explanation. Now back to the poll. Question number three, and it comes to your, to your uh, shelter system. Are you a tent guy, tarp, hammock, bivy, or cowboy camping? What do you prefer? Uh, I like cowboy camping and, and bivvying if conditions allow.
2: On the Colorado Trail, I carried a flat tarp and a bug bivvy. And if the weather was good, I was just out in the bivvy. If it was pissing rain, which oftentimes it was, I was holed up in the tarp.
1: Okay. And uh, with the tarp, do you use that one trekking pole to assist in the the tarp pitch? For the backpacking trip on the Colorado Trail, I took two poles,
2: um, found that it was really helpful with setting up the tarp. Mm -hmm. Do you have a, a favorite tarp pitch? Ooh. This is a fun one. So I I don't know any of the names. It's all kind of new to me. But the one that I did most often when the weather was really bad was a storm pitch. And then I would use my rain skirt, which could unzip. I would use that as a beak to provide a little additional weather protection because it was. there were some nights when it was really, really stormy. And if it was more fair weather, I would do the one where it's kind of like a little bit of a peak and then like a half drop down from the side to where it was like open on sort of like three sides, and that provide a lot of ventilation and some nice views outside and a lot of space in there. Yeah. So I like
1: that one. That's a nice pitch. That's a nice pitch. And I'm I'm not sure that your spork, your long handled spork, is uh, the item to pack in your Trailblazer Toolkit after talking to you. It sounds like the rain skirt is the the go to item here. Yeah, the rain skirt was pretty damn sweet. It really (laughs) proved its salt out there. All right. Question number four, when it comes to your sleep system, are you a sleeping bag guy or a quilt guy? Uh, Once again, it
2: just kind of depends. If I'm on a backpacking trip, I prefer a quilt. It's just more versatile, a little bit lighter weight for the warmth ratio. If I'm doing an alpine climb in the mountains, that is going to require a significant higher degree of protection and so in those cases i tend to opt towards a sleeping bag so
1: just kind of whatever the right tool for the job is okay makes sense now when it comes to food are you a stove guy cold soak or stoveless hmm. i tend to gravitate towards a uh,
2: stove just because i like hot food if i'm on it's because you're
1: normal yeah, yeah
2: exactly <laughs> but if i'm doing like uh a self-supported ultra run through the mountains or something like that. I'll ditch the stove, go for a cold soak. Um, I did this 50 mile run in Iceland a few years back on the, uh, summer solstice. And for that, I just carried, uh, my dehydrated meal and then cold soaked it along the way. And that was plenty sufficient, but once again, that was, you know, can suffer through anything for 24 hours. But if it's a long extended trip, I like hot food.
1: Holy cow. You do it all. 50, 50, 50 mile. Endurance? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Nice. All right. Question number six is life better above or below the tree line. <laughs> do you even have to ask that one? <laughs> <laughs> if you're an alpinist, I, I think I know what the answer is. Indeed you do. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even say it. We, we know, we know. All right. Question number seven, last question in the poll. What's more important? pack weight or luxury items? Uh, I tend to opt towards pack weight. Though you do bring a, a couple of luxury items. I like
2: my Kindle. Um, I like to do reading, particularly if it is going to be on a longer trip. Um, when I'm doing treks in Nepal, I might be out for a month at a time and don't really like to rely on what books I could find in huts. And so having, a near infinite library of reading material with me to pass downtime is pretty awesome.
1: Now if we were to sneak into the pack of the purple hiking skirted uh Chris Brindley Jr. and pull out his Kindle and we open it up, what, what would we what would we find on his Kindle? <laughs> uh probably some revolutionary reading materials like a people's
2: guide to capitalism, the system, who broke it, how we can fix it by Robert Reich. Uh some adventure biographical material and then a lot of near future techno thrillers, which are kind of my guilty pleasure.
1: You know, I like to fancy myself as a Renaissance man, but I, I feel like I pale in comparison. So uh, I'm gonna stop asking these these uh, these questions that really have an impact on my self-worth. And I'm gonna do some math here. We're gonna take your answers. We're going to run them through the John Freaking Mirpod algorithm. I've got to do some math, so just stand by. So I've got, to, I've got to carry the three here. We're going to multiply that by pi, and we're going to divide by root three. And we're going to adjust for the heart rate of a climber who is in the middle of an avalanche on the endless chain ridge. And I come up with a score of 33. Yeah, that's almost my age. <laughs> 33. It's definitely south of 50. So yeah. Uh, you, you are closer to, to insane, I think. <laughs> well, I, uh, I think I can live with that. It's a badge of honor, actually. So there you go. Now, that, that score can adjust uh, up or down depending on the rest of the interview. We'll see how it goes. All right. Okay. Hey, before we get too far down the trail or up the mountain, depending which adventure you choose, uh, let's back up a little bit. Tell us about your background. I know you're on before you're on the podcast before just remind us you know where did you grow up what kinds of sports and hobbies did you play and how did you get involved in the the adventure cult uh
2: yeah so my family is all from the central valley california i was born in stockton my dad described it as uh kind of the armpit of america when i was five we left california and moved to rural western arkansas they wanted to get out of the city and my mom's mom had relocated to her childhood home so we pretty much just followed her we had a plot of about 25 acres of some wood and pasture and a pond and there were no mountains to be found but had a lot of time outside following creeks and playing in rivers and riding dirt bikes around the the property and when i turned 18 i got the fuck out of Arkansas because I wanted to move on and experience new life. So I found myself in a couple different places on the East coast or school. And then when I graduated design school, I moved to Los Angeles for an advertising job up until this point, the only mountains I had ever seen were from essentially the central Valley near Fresno where my uncle lived and I would go out to visit and the Sierra Nevada, which I did not know, Anything about them at that point. They always had a bit of a draw from seeing them throughout my childhood. And when I was 25, I was living a pretty typical young urban creative lifestyle in Los Angeles. I lived in a loft. I rode a motorcycle into work every day, worked in an office. And that was pretty standard. I had some different athletic interests and hobbies in high school. I ran cross country to prepare for. A Naval Academy application and appointment, and I was a cheerleader in college on a varsity team. And so I always kind of had a a bit of a diverse athletic interest set. And then when I was in Los Angeles, I decided that I wanted to be a figure skater. And so at 24, I went and started taking lessons with a kind of US championship coach who had moved on into the teaching realm and got really into that and was training pretty intensively with him and another coach for about eight months. And I did my first ever figure skating competition. And I won my age category there in LA. And two weeks after that, I went on my first ever wilderness backpacking trip in Yosemite. And it was right after my uncle had passed away. And then his son got married at the kind of one of the lodges near the entrance on the West side and figured if they were going to go along with the wedding, I would go along with the backpacking trip that I had planned. And I didn't know anything about the wilderness. I'd once again, never even seen mountains before. And I just kind of had this calling to go out and experience the wild. And I needed time and a moment to kind of grieve and, and disconnect from everything going on in my life. At the time. And while I was out on this backpacking trip, off in the distance, I saw a mountain that had snow on it in the middle of July. And I didn't know that was something that was even physically possible. I'd never encountered anything like that before. And I looked over at my best friend who I had roped into this crazy adventure and I pointed at that mountain. And I said, I want to climb that. And he said, you're crazy, man. You got to have oxygen to climb mountains. And so I was like, no, I don't think it's that crazy. So six months later, I took a winter mountaineering course on Mount Whitney and learned the ropes literally and figuratively and stood on top of Mount Whitney in March. And then six months after that, I quit my desk job, moved out of my loft, Gave away all my things and took off on an eight-month journey around the world doing as much mountaineering and as venture travel as I could and leverage my professional skill sets with photography and writing and video and design to try and build a career out of that. And that was in 2014 and I never really looked back and I never really stopped since then. What was your desk job actually? Was it, was it marketing? Was it design? A little bit of both. I was an art director at an ad agency in Santa Monica. So I was working primarily on Honda Automotive and I was the first photographer who really started generating content and was art directing these photo shoots and actually going out and doing the photo shoots for their Instagram channel before they realized that it was going to be important. And so the work that I was doing kind of laid the foundation for what would eventually become a whole new career field and industry based around content creation and influencer marketing. I was doing that at the agency side, essentially as a case study for Honda to try and get them to start investing in it meaningfully. So I figured I was putting in 40, 50 hours of work doing that for them. I was like, well, what if I invest this time in myself instead, what could I do? And that was kind of the impetus for me launching off onto something new.
1: What a varied background you have from, from being born and, and spending the first few years in the armpit of America and then moving to Arkansas and then uh, college cheerleader uh, picking up figure skating um, then mountaineering uh, and, you know, going from a, a desk job Uh, and just deciding that, you know what, this is, this is not for me any longer. I've got other things I want to do and, you know, walking out on that and not looking back. I mean, what, uh, what a path. It's been a wild ride. Fantastic. All right. Hey, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back after hearing the advertisers, we are going to uh, hear a little more from, from Chris. Um, I want to talk a little bit about just remind folks about uh, you and your your sailing to Antarctica with Mike Horn and who Mike Horn is. And we talked about that last time, but then I want to talk about some of your more recent adventures since the last time we talked. So stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail, all day long. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at JollyGear.com. hiker owned Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Want to make a podcast? And welcome back. We were talking to Chris Brindley Jr. And as, as I said right before break, I want to talk a little bit about your time with Mike Horn. And I've been really impressed on what I what I've read about, what I've seen, uh, the, the social media surrounding surrounding Mike Horn. Tell us, you know, if for those who aren't familiar, who is Mike Horn? Sum it up in a
2: sentence. Mike Horn is often. Referred to as the world's greatest living explorer, he's set foot on more terrain on this planet than probably anybody else alive, and he's covered more waters than probably anybody else alive. He's a adventurer, climber, sailor, overlander—like you name it, he's done it. Um, did a lot of like water-based adventures in his younger days hydro speeding down these crazy rivers which is kind of like a half whitewater kayak that you lay down in and your feet drag behind you like he's done some pretty wild stuff and i mean to continue to list some of his accomplishments he circumnavigated the arctic circle using non-motorized transport he circumnavigated the equator in a similar manner and i joined him on what was to be his grandest adventure to circumnavigate the globe through the poles so north south north and i joined him on a segment from cape town south africa and we sailed to a very remote part of antarctica ice breaking in this unique sailing vessel along the way we got on the ice and essentially dropped him off where he proceeded to kiteski solo across the continent in roughly 58 days at its widest geographical point and then from there we sailed up to perth australia i got off the ship and they continued around, and his crew picked him up on the other side a couple months later. And eventually he continued up, went through the North Pole with uh, another renowned explorer, Borgia Oslin. And that was uh, the Pole-to-Pole Expedition. And it took place over the course of a couple years, around 2017 and
1: 2018. And as I recall from our earlier conversation during that episode, you didn't have a whole lot of... Uh sailing experience at that point. <laughs> yeah, I'd never
2: spent a night on a boat before that. And then all of a sudden there I was thrown into seven weeks on the roughest seas on the planet.
1: And what did you what did you glean from your time with Mike Horn? What what pearls of wisdom were you able to pick up? That I
2: am not a sailor and I don't want to spend any more time on a boat. <laughs> no. Um his Enthusiasm and approach to adventure in life are unrelenting and through a can-do attitude, he achieves just about anything. And I think if any one of us were to apply even just a fragment of that attitude into our own lives, we could probably accomplish a lot more than what we
1: had initially believed we were capable of. All right. Well said. Well said. Let's talk about some some more of your adventures. And I, I think this has happened since the last time we talked. Um, tell me about New Zealand and the Southern Alps. Uh, yeah. So in 2018,
2: I got a working holiday visa. And I went down there for about a year with the intention of climbing as many big and hard mountains as I could. And ultimately, it was a pretty tough winter and spring season conditions and weather-wise. And there was never really any good snowpack stability or breaks in the storm cycles. A lot of guides who went out, a lot of people who went out in those conditions ended up meeting pretty tragic fates. I played it safe, but as a result, got to climb almost none of the objectives that I had set out to do. As a consolation, I got into pack rafting and mountain bikepacking kind of as a couple activities like I could do in more inclement weather that were less condition dependent when compared to the mixed alpine routes that I had set my sights on. So that was a, a pretty tough year in having to measure expectations, but it taught some important lessons and ultimately, you know, we kind of just have to go with the flow like nature conditions. They're always in charge and particularly with alpinism, when stuff is very condition dependent and it's tough enough finding alignment with partners and routes and ability and fitness and skills, much less when you add in those other environmental factors, the margin for success becomes infinitely small and I think I really struggled by bashing my head kind of metaphorically against those walls, hoping to be able to break through by sheer willpower. But ultimately, you just gotta let go of expectations and and handle whatever life throws at you. And that lesson, which I learned through a series of adventure or misadventures, has been able to be pretty key in my life moving forward beyond that, uh, even outside of adventure.
1: Yeah. I think with a lot of uh, outdoor adventure, there's there's a lot of planning that goes into it and you, you, you go into a trip, you go into an adventure expecting that these are going to be the sequence of events. That's going to lead me from, from where I start to where I finish. And that's, that's, how I'm going to measure my success and expectations very quickly can, can run into a wall, like you said. And, Uh, if you're not flexible if you can't go with the flow if you can't think on your feet uh, it becomes a very frustrating exercise yeah something
2: else I kind of picked up there which I've kept up in recent years is a lot of the hardcore Kiwis that I met when they go out and have an experience they don't refer to it in the same way that we do here in the U.S. like if we're going to go out to do uh a backpacking trip or a mountain climb, whatever it's, we kind of use the word adventure synonymously with any one of those experiences. But the classic definition of the word is any event or experience having an unexpected outcome. So only when things don't go according to plan, do you start to have an adventure. Sometimes you go out on a trip and everything goes according to plan. And even though you might be climbing this cool route and it's requiring all these skills and experience, if you go out and you execute and you don't have to adapt anything, then is it really an adventure? What the Kiwis that I met would call these experiences that they would have outside would be a mission. They've got an objective and they're going to go out and do it. Sometimes a mission can be an adventure. Sometimes a mission is just a mission. And that was some verbiage that really resonated with me, and I've taken to application of that in my own life and descriptors. And I think that's a, a pretty cool thing and a, a neat differentiator.
1: Now, now, Chris, that almost that almost sounds like a hiking hack right there. The difference between an adventure and a mission. I, I hope you didn't you didn't uh, use that too soon. You, you're still on the hook when we get to the hiker hack. You got it. But I like that. A mission is something that goes according to plan. You've got objectives, you go out, you accomplish it, and there you go. And an adventure has that that bit of the unknown to it. When things start to go wrong, when, when the wheels start falling off and you find yourself in a place you, you did not expect to be, that's an adventure. And I think you know, the positive connotation of the word adventure, I mean, if you're able to internalize that concept, then you really are leaning into that experience you're embracing the suck you're you're being comfortable uh being uncomfortable i mean all, all of that kind of falls into place with that mindset that's great yeah i think so too so right. thank you
2: new zealand thank you new zealand i'd love to talk more about some of the expeditions that i've had in the last couple of years which are a little more recent and more relevant i had kind of been on a bit of a travel hiatus as most people were during the height of lockdown with regards to the pandemic. And in 2021 in the autumn, the world started opening up just a little bit again. And I booked a last minute trip to Nepal to go climb a 6,000 meter peak that I had had my sights set on for the last previous five or six years called kiajo and kiajo is a uh, technical the the route to ascend it is somewhat technical in nature it requires some rock climbing and some kind of low angle ice climbing or steep snow climbing depending on how how the conditions are and it's in a pretty remote area of what is otherwise uh popular zone in the kumbu near mount everest but the approach valley to get into it is is uh kind of high and remote and off a beaten track with no typical trekking hut infrastructure so it's a bit more of a wilderness experience to go do this climb and went up there with a climbing mentor and it was uh kind of a Profound experience and benchmark for me as a budding alpinist. The initial attempt we had on the route didn't quite go according to plan. There were some issues with ropes being fixed and some safety and risk mitigation that wasn't appropriate to proceed on for the the benefit of the safety of my climbing partner and so we ended up backing off that and got back into into the village and got another weather window and kind of a second wind and decided to make another go at it and that attempt I ended up approaching it as a soloist and ended up dropping my rack and just brought a lightweight rappel line and my tools and I ended up solo climbing this route up to what equates to roughly 20,000 feet on uh, it was a pretty steep line and during that time I was the only person on this entire mountain in this pretty remote valley surrounded by these renowned himalayan giants like Ama Dablam and Mount Everest and it kind of Like that trip, it was my fourth or fifth time into that particular region. And it kind of renewed the spirit of Nepal for me after I'd kind of gotten burnt out on on spending time in that particular zone. And it kind of became a little bit of a, a launch pad and a catalyst to continue exploring that region and eventually share it with other people.
1: Wow. Uh, tell me about climbing at 20,000 feet. I mean, I know on top of Whitney, it, it, it feels like there's no air whatsoever. You go another 6,000 or five, five, five and a half thousand feet higher than that. Uh, that that's gotta be something. Yeah. Uh, it was
2: pretty fatiguing. So on Kiajori, I was on this steep slope. It's probably, 60 65 degrees on snow and ice and I would climb up a couple steps and then I would just like drop my head rest on my ice tools and my crampons and just like take 15 seconds of deep breaths and then I would take two more steps and then do the same thing and I pretty much repeated that all the way up the face on that route um it's it's not easygoing but at the same time depending on how well you climatize it can also be relatively manageable in comparison so a lot of physiological factors go into it and you know on that particular climb I was fine I got up to the summit but I felt more fatigued on that or or more Uh, had more difficulty breathing on that than I did on an even more difficult and higher altitude climb where I even carried more equipment and more gear this past autumn on a mountain called Chilate. So it really kind of just goes into how well you're acclimatized um, as far as the difficulty of it all. But if you're well acclimatized, it kind of just feels like a 14 year climb right? And is Chalate also in Nepal? Chalate is in Nepal. It is in that same region, but it's a peak that is around 6,500 meters in elevation, roughly 21,000 feet. Um, it's got a similar technical difficulty to amadablam de Blom, which is kind of a famous technical mountain over there, but it's climbed much less frequently. And we had a, a pretty cool wilderness experience over there camping in this remote valley with a bunch of yaks and it was just my small team of me uh, my mentor our friends who are also climbing porters and chirpas so just the four of us over there to tackle that pretty relatively high technical mountain and uh it was a pretty rad experience in this past autumn And on that one, I led the expedition, I planned all the logistics, I set up our acclimatization schedule, I load hauled and did a lot of the groundwork and our team of three climbers, including one Sherpa climber, my mentee and myself, we all made it to the summit which was pretty exciting. We climbed from base camp to the summit and back in three days. And we were the first party from my commercial organizers roster and their decade long history of running expeditions in Nepal. We were the first party to ever make it to the summit of Cholatse after several attempts by other parties. So that was pretty cool. Wow. Very
1: cool. Very cool. Now, I want to talk about concept versus impact. I think a lot of people have concept of mountains and high mountains. Um, I I want to give an example. I had, I had this concept of, you know, New York city and, you know, skyscrapers. I had, had this image in my mind. I kind of, I could picture it, but when I got to New York city and I was, and I was on Manhattan and uh, I was in the middle of those skyscrapers that was a that, that did not match the concept in my head the impact of of just the how how massive and how high those things were uh, when you're staying at the bottom of them that had an impact and i think I think a lot of people um you know i, I ch- try and show pictures of, of the Sierras when I'm out there to to folks when i when I come back and they're like, yeah, that's nice. And it, no, it's not nice. It, it's it's incredible. I, I think they have in their idea a concept of what it is, but they, they can't really understand the impact until they get out there. And I imagine that uh, being in, in Nepal amongst those peaks, it has got to be just awesome. It's exactly as you described, but amplified.
2: Because you could be standing at... For example, uh, we were in the valley beneath Chalatze, and the valley itself was roughly 16,000 feet. But the summit of Chalatze was another 6,000 feet above us, even though the wall to the mountain was only a mile or two away. So we're looking at 6,000 feet of vertical relief from what is essentially an equal distance away from the base. And so you could pretty much draw like a a straight line across and make a, an equilateral triangle between the face and the Valley. And that is something you don't get to do very often just to have that perspective with that kind of relief. And that wasn't even one of the big mountains there. That was like a little mountain by Nepal standards.
1: It's got to be just absolutely massive out
2: there. Standing on the summit of Chalatse at roughly 21,500-ish feet, you could look over at Everest, which was, I don't know, 10 miles away, and that mountain still has uh, like
1: 8,000 feet on you roughly that is wild absolutely wild now any any times out there where you thought to yourself or you have you ever been in situations where you're like either what am i doing out here this is this is ridiculous or or you know what i'm in a spot right now i'm i'm not sure i'm not i might get out of it definitely had a couple of those moments my to
2: connect with the the first statement you made like sometimes when i'm out there You know, it's, it's a lot to, to take in just from a stimulus perspective or stimuli visually uh, like all the, the senses can be quite on overload and sometimes you just got to like take a deep breath and relax. And, and I think what is really helpful for all the grandeur that the Himalaya have in Nepal in particular, there's a lot of infrastructure that makes a lot of it very accessible. And so you can be out in these incredible mountain arenas, but have exponentially more people that you might encounter in a trip in the Eastern Sierra, for example. And so those types of experiences running into a lot of people that can be pretty overwhelming in less positive ways. And so what I've focused on with my Nepal experiences is how can I get off those beaten tracks and really seek out areas that provide all the grandeur and wonder of the Himalaya and still have the convenience of infrastructure, but will simultaneously facilitate more of a personal isolated wilderness experience in what are otherwise popular zones. And so for my last three trips out there, that's the focus that I've taken and the approach that I've taken. And I'm really grateful to say that I've found amazing success with that. And I think the last four or five mountains that I've climbed out there I've either been the only person to stand on the summit or I've only stood on the summit with my party. And furthermore, have we've been the only people on those entire mountains. Whereas if you go five miles over in any direction, there could be hundreds of people in a village or hundreds of people lining up to do a summit bid on a climb. And that's cool for some people, but I don't go to the mountains to stand in line. I want to have a wilderness experience. And so seeking that out and, and finding those
1: in a place like Nepal has been really special. Fantastic. I mean, there there is something to be said about being remote and uh, off the beaten path and away from everybody else. It it's a, gives a whole new level to things. Absolutely. Now, what are your thoughts on, and we've been talking about, uh, actual mountain peaks and actual valleys. But let, let's go a little metaphorical here. I mean, what is the value in having highs and lows in your trip? So, this is a a topic that I
2: find a great amount of personal resonance in. When I left my job in LA in 2014, I set out to climb these mountains and I, I went to Nepal and I climbed my first 6,000 meter peak. And I made it to the summit and It provided all the elation that I could have ever imagined. But what I didn't comprehend at the time was through the trials and tribulations of that experience, I would discover some of my lowest lows. And on a physical plane, when we think about that, you're in a valley and then you climb up to the mountain and you go back to the valley. But when you translate that to an emotional spectrum, you have these highs that are Himalayan, but the lows, they're not at valley level. That's the baseline. They reach canyon depths. And the higher your highs become, the lower those lows can also get until you're truly wallowing in the self-discovery of these depths. And if you're not careful, you can get lost down there. And so it's important that I've found to be able to kind of develop these strengths from the summits and utilize those as tools to be able to climb back up out of the depths that simultaneously occur that we all inevitably experience in life.
1: Well said. I took a took a cruise through your website and uh, discovered a few topics. Do we want to talk about, I think it's kind of a good segue to talking about living boldly and getting unleashed. Some, some phrases that I saw on your website. Absolutely. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. So in terms of living boldly, I mean, what is, what does that mean? What does that entail? So I think
2: through all these Experiences and the non traditional life path that I've embarked upon, when I kind of distill the essence of my existence down, I, I can basically sum it up in that phrase and living boldly. And I think anyone who lives boldly kind of have to establish a bit of a creed and some tenets and some values. What those are, that's totally up to you. But you've got to identify those and then you got to stick to them and you got to live them. And through having those foundations, it sets up a course and a trajectory and allows us to live the most meaningful and and rich life that we can. And so living boldly is just my way of distilling down the life path that I've taken and my values that I've developed and ascertained and the way that I see the world and and the tactics and strategy of my approach to living it.
1: So you talk about goals and tenets. It almost sounds like a mission, but I, I have a feeling that there's a bit of adventure in there as well, a bit of the unknown and unexpected. Absolutely. And by embracing
2: that and tackling it head on, that's a, uh, that's a way to, to live boldly. Okay. And how about getting unleashed? So through all of these experiences that I've had out in the world, I have come to understand a great deal about what it is to kind of create a mission and, and set some goals and then go out and, find a path towards achieving them and getting unleashed is my way of leveraging those experiences and insights from my own path of life live boldly in order to help others, whether that's individuals or brands or organizations kind of reach their fullest potential through the development of, these concepts and tenets that are uh, a strategy and approach to life and so uh, I guess you could think of living boldly as my tactics and strategy and approach to life and getting unleashed is uh, a service that helps me to
1: help others create their own paths towards living boldly fantastic and how many how many folks have you helped? Uh, get unleashed and and start to to live boldly? That's a great question.
2: I haven't really kept track, but whether it's a a simple conversation or a consultation or a person who has joined me on a mission outside or a mentor that I've taken under my wing, there are a lot of different forms that that can take in helping others to reach their potential has been one of the most fulfilling aspects of my own life and it's something that i believe is very important and that i am grateful to be in a position to have experienced all of this and now i desire to to leverage these skills and these tools that I have developed into continuing to help other people achieve their potential.
1: Great. Now I'll go back just for a second, because we talked about the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, and maybe getting stuck in those low points. Any, any tips or advice on how to avoid getting stuck down there? Uh, We're all going to get down there. It's just a matter of how long we spend down there.
2: That is the differentiator. I found that my mental and emotional well-being, as well as my physical, is intrinsically tied to human locomotion. If I'm stagnant and I'm not moving my body, when I enter one of those low zones, I will tend to spend more time down there if I'm not moving physically, if I'm stagnant, if I create a routine and a rhythm of, of trail running or skating or skiing, it doesn't matter what it is. So long as I'm moving, I find that it loosens the channel of that track of the Canyon and allows much more powerful and rapid ascension from those depths. And so I truly believe that we as humans are designed to move and most of us don't move nearly enough. And I think that it has a detrimental effect on the individual as well as societal fabric.
1: Nice. All right. And I understand you have some big plans uh, in the, in the near term here. Uh, Something about an expedition company. Indeed. So Utilizing all of the
2: insights and skills that I've acquired over the last eight years of professional adventure travel and storytelling, I'm launching a company called Transcendent Expeditions and starting off with a series of group trips in Nepal, both guided treks and also guided mountaineering expeditions. And I envision using this company as a way to pass on the skills and insights and knowledge that I've ascertained from a life lived boldly while on these outdoor missions in really incredible and inspirational places. So in some ways it's an opportunity to leverage my expedition planning and storytelling skills to facilitate truly world-class experiences for others. And then it's also an opportunity for me to pass on knowledge and wisdom and mentorship through these experiences. And so that's really the essence of what I want to accomplish with Transcendent, to take people out and help them Realize the best versions of themselves through outdoor recreation. And these expeditions will take place in Nepal? Uh, initially, starting out in Nepal, but I also plan to have other international destinations on the roster, looking at a ski trip in the country of Georgia for next winter, potentially a multidisciplinary expedition in Kyrgyzstan in the near future. Which I'm going to scout for this summer. But launching with Nepal, because that's where I've had most time with my boots on the ground. And it's a place that I'm incredibly passionate about and, and want to share with other people.
1: Now, for folks who are interested in signing up for one of these expeditions in Nepal, how much experience do they need to have ahead of time? So there's a
2: couple different tiers, essentially. The first tier, if you kind of, Classify it as that is a trek and this will be a tea house trek. So um, Kind of carrying light day packs, but it will be some somewhat strenuous hiking with some longer days and going up to high altitude close to 17,000 feet, but as far as experience level if you've done any all-day hiking or any Backpacking trips you've essentially got the baseline to go if you think you can walk for eight hours a day every day for a couple of weeks, you're probably going to be set. The mountaineering expeditions uh, are going to be a little bit more intensive, but they are aimed at either experienced mountaineers who are wanting to climb to greater heights or alternatively uh, fit, motivated, adventurous people who don't necessarily have any previous mountaineering experience experience but are looking to learn and develop some of those skills and have a cultural experience tied into that and get to put it to use at high altitude. So those are kind of the two main offerings that I've got uh, currently live. And I've got a few people signed up for the trek already and the spots are filling up pretty quickly. So if uh, anyone's interested, TranscendentExpeditions.com.
1: That was going to be my question. We find out more transcendent expeditions.com all right hey chris you know where we are are we at the end of segment two not yet not at the end of segment two where are we we are
0: hiking hacks
1: that's right half calf it's time for the hiking hack uh, where you get to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. What kind of advice do you have for us, our listeners for the next adventure? Uh, let's talk a little bit about
2: staying warm when it's really cold. Cause that's something that I practice pretty regularly on my Alpine endeavors that I think can parlay pretty well into even the most basic backpacking trips. So think there are uh, a few different strategies that I'll kind of utilize with regards to that. And to narrow the focus a little bit, let's think about staying warm while we're camping, while we're preparing to sleep, while we're sleeping. So one of the aspects that we can consider, one strategy is to ensure that we're properly fueled. Our bodies need calories. And by burning those calories, we output btus body heat and if we consume calories closer to the time that we're going to bed it's going to give us some energy to burn and that's going to help keep us warm while we're sleeping another strategy that we can use is if you're utilizing a freeze-dried meal for your your backpacking trip or climbing trip whatever it is you can put your hot boiling water into that and then tuck it inside your parka or in your sleeping bag while you're kind of stationary and that will help heat up your core and and keep you warm leading up to eating which will ultimately help you to process and digest that food more easily when you're getting ready to go to bed you can boil water and put that inside a hot water bottle, like a, a algae bottle. I prefer the soft Nalgene's because they have a bit more give. And if you tuck that in between your thighs, it is going to heat up a couple of your major arteries and uh, blood passages. And so that is a, a way to have that blood flow moving through your body, be actively heated by that hot water bottle Another thing to consider thats, that's is, probably pretty handy when you get your skirt on. Very handy indeed. And yeah. especially mountaineering, if you're uh, trying to save weight by using a, a, a bag that is lighter with a less robust temperature rating, it's a way you can kind of combat some of that cold. Um, another strategy is to utilize a pee bottle and If you have to urinate in the middle of the night by holding that in, it actually makes you colder. And so you want to relieve yourself as frequently and as quickly as you can so that you get that urine out and can stay warm. Another tack, if you're uh, pretty bold, is you can urinate into your pee bottle and then you put the pee bottle inside your sleeping bag and then you've got another hot water bottle to utilize that's right at close to
1: 100 degrees. So that one's pretty good. Next level. Next yeah. level. You are just chock full of hiking hacks. That's fantastic.
2: Thanks yeah, well, so Got to stay
1: warm. Yep. All right. So there you have it. We are just about done here. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Chris. Want to thank him for joining us this week. Chris, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media? And where can they find updates on your latest adventures?
2: Uh I... Just put a lot of work into updating my website, which is boldly.live. It's a pretty simple URL, and I'm going to be utilizing that as a resource to share insights into gear, upcoming expeditions, different stories, and and all of the, the work that I'm producing It's kind of a, a great collection of that, and I've created it to be a pretty powerful resource for return visitors. Um, I have an Instagram, Chris Brindley Jr. I'm somewhat disenfranchised by social media as I think a lot of us are, but I find that it's a great way to connect with actual people digitally, which when that leads to an in-person real life analog collection is really powerful. So feel free to reach out to me on there. I don't particularly care for social media, but I love the people using it. And so that's, that's why I'm still on and somewhat have a presence. But, uh, I think the, the analog stuff is where my heart is moving most towards and meeting and connecting with people on, on outdoor missions through transcendent expeditions, really developing those in-person connections. That's what I'm going to be investing a lot of time in in the, the coming months and years so i think that's probably the best way to keep up and get in
1: touch totally get it and i'm i'm now embarrassed to say that uh make sure you check out the pod on social media we are on facebook youtube instagram twitter and tiktok for as long as tiktok is is legal in the u.s and yeah. if you have comments or clips you want to share with me you can send it to me at john at gmail.com
0: off the beaten path
1: Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we fi- we need to find a way to get our adventure fix. So, Chris, I'm going to ask you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This can be a book or a movie or a documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. What do you have for us? All right. Movie. Watch The Alpinist.
2: Fantastic. Book. Mm-hmm. Last of His Kind, The Life and Adventures of Bradford Washburn is a pretty incredible character. Look him up. I won't dive too much into it. Magazine, check out Mountain Gazette. It's the first outdoor publication that was released in, I think, like the 1950s or 60s. But it has been revitalized under new ownership, and it is a beautiful, large format print edition comes out biannually and I have my first contribution to that publication coming out in this spring issue where I dive into some pretty personal and revelatory topics that we've kind of touched on and alluded to here. So
1: um stories by me and a lot of other incredible outdoor writers and photographers. We'll have to check that out. I'm intrigued. Fantastic. And just to be clear, you didn't need to give me one from each category, but I appreciate the fact that you gave me multiple. So thank you. That's great. Yeah, we got to get our fix.
2: What have we not
1: asked you? And before we wrap things up, just one more segment called, what have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss tonight?
2: Ah, That's a great question. You know, we could talk about any number of things. Um, I've been pretty curious about better understanding the economic systems that control and dictate so much of our existences. And I think that another great podcast, which could align with a lot of listeners here would be upstream. So check that out, dive into uh, a
1: people's guide to capitalism. I think that one's a pretty good place to start. All right. We're back to some of your Kindle material. I love it. I love it. That's great. All right. We are finished. Thank you for coming on the podcast, Chris. We wish you the very best in your future adventures and transcendent expeditions. Uh, we hope you'll consider coming back at some point some point and sharing some more epic stories. As we close up today, do you have any shout outs to friends and family, Chris? Uh,
2: I just like to thank people who have been engaged and involved with my journey thus far, far too numerous to count, but the outpouring of support through messages and, and comments has been monumentally meaningful and I am grateful for when those connections once again in the digital space have manifested themselves into analog real life stuff. So if you're listening and, and you know me, you know who you
1: are. Fantastic. Keep at it, Chris. We're, we're pulling for you. All right. Thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if there's a a strong breeze blowing up your purple hiking skirt. The trail is the trail. Embrace the suck. Love it.